Welcome to the Communicating Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Colm Harney, a dentist with a special interest in all aspects of communication in healthcare. Each episode, I'll be having a conversation with inspirational practitioners to discover how they communicate effectively, creating exceptional relationships with their patients and fulfilling, rewarding careers. For clinicians who care, let's find out how the experts do it. My guest today is Dr. Sharon Zaks. Sharon grew up in a family of dentists and graduated from Melbourne University in 1998. She owns her own practice and has a special interest in periodontics, oral surgery, treating anxious and phobic patients, and also survivors of trauma. It's work in this latter area where Sharon has been making waves in the world of dentistry and also raising awareness to the general public through articles, interviews, and even a TED Talk. Sharon has identified the very significant effects that sexual assault can have, not only on oral health, but in overall patient well-being. She has spent the last number of years researching and developing a protocol for dental professionals called Trauma-Informed Dental Care, in order to give dental teams understanding of the issues and strategies that can be used before, during and after appointments with trauma survivors. This is a two-parter, the first part relating more to the theory of the challenges faced by survivors accessing dentistry and how dental professionals can respond. The second part relates more to the practical application of those principles and dentist self-care. For a more rounded bio, I'll refer you to the ABC Conversations interview in the links below. Thank you very much for joining me this morning in the Communicating Health podcast. It's been a journey to try and get to speak to you. And the reason for that is you've been riding the crest of a wave, doing lots of speaking, TED Talk, interviews with the ABC, BBC, and anyone else you care to mention that you've been speaking to? Yes, there's been a flurry of activity and different areas and different organisations. So I had imagined that the pace may slow down after TED, but in fact, it's sustained itself. So it's okay. been an incredibly busy time and very exciting. And I've been very heartened by the interest from so many different corners yeah. of the world and different organisations too, from lawyers to psychologists and allied health professionals as well. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's been really, really fun and lovely. Yeah. And to enlighten people about specifically what this interest is about, would you describe it under the broad umbrella of trauma-informed dental care? Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, and I've incorporated other elements. So the trauma-informed principles are one framework which is commonly used in psychiatry and social work and other mental health areas. But I've added to that with research from dental anxiety and phobia, difficulties survivors have accessing healthcare and my own interviews and collaboration with CASA. So I've incorporated and adapted the trauma-informed principles comprehensively to dentistry, okay. but also drawn from my own experience over 20 years and other sources of research. I heard you speak at the ADA Congress. You crystallised or distilled a lot of things or you even verbalised and spoke a lot of information and concepts that had always been in the back of my mind when I've seen certain patients over 25 years of practice. And when you said it, lots of pennies dropped and lots of things made sense. On your website, you've got fantastic resources, lectures, which are really high level 
professional standard and um, oh, thank you very much <laughs> quite an amazing resource for any dental professional dentist hygienist therapist dental assistants reception staff practice managers anybody who works in a dental surgery are, i think could gain huge value from listening to those and accessing it as a resource it's stuff that we never learned in dental school it was never mentioned even in dental schools from your perspective, is this a new field that you're opening up? Is this why, for want of a better way of describing it, gone viral? Is, is it because you've shone a light on a new area of dentistry that hadn't been accessed before? Yes, that's right. That's right. And I was particularly excited when I first put a picture together and recognised the parallels between sexual assault and dental appointments, working with a patient when I was up in the country. And yeah. I did an extensive search all around as far as I could see online, speaking to many, many people around the world as to whether anything had been done in this area. And nobody was aware of the links or had studied it. But there are a lot of investigations into the difficulties survivors of sexual assault have in accessing healthcare in general, including a big Canadian study that did talk about dentistry and the challenges, but nobody had comprehensively addressed it. So I got very excited because I realised I've always had a huge interest in this area from the very beginning of my career. I realised there was a big disconnect on both sides between trauma survivors in general and us as dentists without an awareness or education. So yes, you're right. I was, I was most excited to invent a new framework for us mm. and, and set of tools and introduce a whole new area into the profession. And what's really evident as well from listening, uh, watching the hours of content that you have up on the on the net and hearing you speak is that it's all evidence based. So you're not just plucking information from anecdotal experience or from things you saw or something somebody told you. It's all evidence based. And obviously, to get that evidence based, there must have been a huge amount of time, effort, research preparation. And that's very clear from all of that. I'm sure I've got no idea of the amount of hours that you've put into this, but I think, yeah, you deserve huge commendation for the effort. And anybody who sees what you've done, on, in particularly in those lectures, will, will see the amount of, of effort you've put into it. So it's pretty amazing. Oh, thank you so much. I really didn't plan on having it overtake my life, but mm -hmm. I'm very fascinated and curious and love investigating human relationships and communication and behaviour. So the more I delved in, and it started officially in January 2017, the more it overtook and grew. So initially, the plan was to make one five-minute video for dentists and one for survivors, okay. and now it's sort of two and a half hours of footage and yes. 13 videos. So I, I did cut back my clinical hours significantly in order to accommodate all of this, and it's all been okay. voluntary. So yeah. it started in January 17, mm. and the videos were finally uploaded in June 18, around then, and the research has just continued. So it's been a very, very intense and rich experience. I hadn't anticipated having two teams of volunteers from two different branches of the Centre Against Sexual Assault, CASA. Okay. And and I'd never been on camera before and I composed music for it. And so it was an enormous effort. You're absolutely right. What you've said is a really nice segue into the material. You mentioned about never having been on camera before. And it's quite evident when you watch your TED talk, you openly say it right at the start about how nervous you're feeling. And that is a reflection of that amygdala type 
fight or flight response. You're probably standing on stage looking for the stage door. Where Can I run? Will I stare? Will I run? And that segues neatly into, I suppose, the, the way you've laid out your talks. You talk about the challenges for survivors and you, you lay out a really interesting framework of how survivors respond and then relate that to the dental environment. So could we go through that, first of all, as, as part of the conversation? Yes, I mean, the, the irony that I was in the position of petrified patients yes. uh, and going through absolutely the exact process or very similar with all of the similar responses wasn't lost on me. And I consciously decided that I wasn't going to be able to hide how scared I was. And there was a thought in me that I'd like to be an example of how much we can help each other through our fears, how much we can impact on each other and, and shift things for each other. So and I felt the audience was incredibly supportive. They were behind me the whole way and I, I really was able to connect in to feeling welcomed and and then to stand and deliver. So, yes, very well observed. And I, and I was uh, physically pushed onto the stage because <laughs> I was actually panicking so, so heavily. But either way, it, thankfully it went very, very well. And really what got me through was wanting to send the messages to everybody. So yeah. I did actually did call on my clinical experience of having to put aside my stuff in order to be very present for patients. I did go into sort of a work mode before going out in front of the five and a half thousand people. And that really did help, actually, because it wasn't about me. And that was extremely useful as well as it is yeah. with work. Yeah. yeah. You talk about your overarching message is that if we treat patients, these trauma survivors, in a particular way, or all of our patients in a particular way, we can transform their lives. Correct. Yes, absolutely. The, the impact of our relationship, I think, can be extremely inspiring. And a lot of the time we won't be told directly, but yeah. it's there's a really huge opportunity we have as dentists to help heal trauma, physically and neurologically heal trauma. So we'll get into that, I'm sure. But yeah. I'm aware your first question was in relation to how survivors present and what sort yeah. of responses anxiety creates. And even um, as, first of all, uh, you mentioned right at the start of your talks, the prevalence Yes, of survivors. Uh, yes. Yes. Well, the scope of the issue shocked me when I first found out. It's sort of unbelievable. But the global statistic is one in three women and one yeah. in six men have been sexually assaulted by the age of 18. And that was a study that was the only one of its kind that measured it in that way by Ferguson. And there's a more recently done Australian Bureau of Statistics survey. But the way they divided up is they take it from adulthood and then from childhood. So they don't catch the biggest cohort, according to police data, of people who suffer sexual abuse, which is 10 to 14-year-old girls. So okay. their, their stats are a bit harder to easily roll off because there's a lot of different categories they've got. So the one in three, one in six is still the most commonly used reported prevalence mm. by the Centre Against Sexual Assault and so on. And that's considered even to be an under-reporting because of the difficulties people have coming forward and the cultural barriers sure. to reporting. Although that is shifting now and the prevalence among men has gone right up because more men are feeling comfortable to report mm. it. So the fact that we're seeing these survivors as our regular patients without awareness of the yes. history is why I wanted to bring our attention to how to pick up the signs that might allow us to put a picture together, especially yeah. because we won't be told the majority of the time. Yes, that's right. And yeah. I thought something that you mentioned was really interesting. We, we talk about 
universal cross-infection control, as in we we do cross-infection control for everybody the same way to a very high standard as if everybody had a terrible infectious disease. (laughs) Equating that to what you're talking about, if the statistics are that high, and that's an incredible number, is... It needs to be universal protocols, essentially, for every staff member. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And it can only benefit all patients, including yeah. the silent majority of yes. survivors. Yeah, and, totally. um, yeah. Because we're all vulnerable as patients in a dental setting. That's really what I was so keen to highlight was the power imbalanced dental treatment creates, not just mm-hmm. physically with having patients in our lap, but also emotionally and psychologically and yeah. the impact of that power imbalance. Okay. So, can you talk um, a little bit more about that then, Sharon? Sure, yeah. yes. So in terms of all trauma, whether it's personal like sexual assault or impersonal like a bushfire or something else impersonal, the common thread that unites all trauma is the loss of agency. So people lose control of the situation and the fight and flight response doesn't allow the stress hormones to go to the muscles as usual because we lose control and we're kind of stuck they go straight to the emotional center of the brain and cause panic and helplessness. So that's why Unfortunately, the dental environment is full of triggers for memories for people who've been through trauma and lost agency because of that power imbalance. So anytime people feel helpless again, for example, in a dental surgery setting where there's a power imbalance, that activates memories of the original trauma, which are often relived as vividly as the initial events. That's very, very unpleasant and and sets off anxiety and panic and and another response called dissociation. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, yes, it's very, very understandable then that people would want to avoid that sort of experience and reminders of the trauma to that degree. So the body holds its own memory of trauma. So independently of our sort of psychological awareness, there's a physical memory which gets activated. And that's why the physical similarities between dentistry and sexual assault are so critical. For example, being in the horizontal position and there's a yes. whole other other list of parallels that I've got, which I can roll off. Yeah, so, please. Yes, there's the, the issue of power and the being very... Uh, sensitive to the fact that people are disempowered even if they haven't had a traumatic experience and fear of the dentist is so common even in people who haven't suffered trauma and it's just recognizing how vulnerable we all are so this approach I think giving back power control and choice is the main mindset behind my approach and that really yes again only is beneficial to everybody so it it makes sense to use it across the board Yes. yes Things that you mentioned that really struck home with me, doing something like a simple scale and clean or even a periodontal probing where somebody's gums might bleed and the taste of blood yes. in their mouth. Uh, th- yes. That just struck me so, so resonant, you know, something that we do all the time and that can be a trigger. And it's so obvious yes. when, when you say it, but you, we never think about it. Yes, yes, that's right. That's mainly what people have been saying from all over the world. It's just it's so obvious, but we just didn't put it together. And survivors as well have been Mm. sending me messages saying, thank you so much. I've been scared for all these years and avoiding going. And now I understand why. And now I I sort of don't feel so guilty and ashamed about it. So perhaps I'll tell you about some of these parallels between in particular. But the strategies I'm proposing apply to all trauma. So, But sexual assault is the area that I've done a lot of research in in recent time. Although my whole life I've been uh, having a very special interest in anxious and phobic people, no matter what the cause. But either way, with regard to sexual assault in particular, there's the lying in the lack of a trusted authority figure, which is a reminder of childhood abuse, and yeah. being immobilised, which unfortunately is necessary for dental care during treatment. And that's yeah. a reminder of being pinned down. 
feeling or being unable to speak, which is a reminder of being silenced, and uh, having the mouth filled up or yeah. having fingers and instruments in the mouth and holding open for a long time. Unfortunately, the mouth is really commonly involved in sexual assault and forced kissing or forced oral sex are very, yeah. very common. There's the horizontal chair position and the evidence shows that actually memories are more likely to surface when a person is back in the same physical position as the abuse. And again, that's a survival mechanism by the brain to panic in that scenario. So often memories might only surface when our survivor patient is sort of lowered back into the supine position. Then there's having the dentist above you and accidental touching with the close proximity of bodies. If we think about it, most of the offenders are also in a role of trusted caregivers because they're usually known to the to the victim. And so they've had their trust broken already and uh, often pain and discomfort. So here we are as another trusted caregiver reassuring people that the treatment is really in their best interests. And so, of course, they're going to be scared of being betrayed again because sure. trust has been broken. And there's the smell of latex can remind people of condoms mm. and the unpredictability about what to expect and what will happen next because in the abuse they often didn't understand what was going on and uh, what was happening to them and yeah it goes on and on but overall really it's about feeling under someone else's control and like yeah. they can do anything they want to you so that's why really being aware and giving back control power and choice at every moment of the interaction is is just so helpful and so empowering it's really amazing people have often lost the ability to believe that they can control what happens to their bodies and we can really give that back to people. Yeah when you roll off that list it just again we never think about it we, we just don't but yes. it makes so much yes. sense. Yes. Another thing that really resonated as well was uh, you talked about the feelings that trauma survivors often have of disgust at themselves and shame and feeling responsible for the situation, which is very counterintuitive. But again, if you think about it, it makes sense. And we have to think about that mindset that, that our patients might have. Can you speak a bit more about that? Oh, absolutely. This is a really, really key concept to understand that mm. during particularly trauma from sexual assault, the victim is taught by the offender that they are to blame for what's going on, that it's their fault that the person just can't help themselves because they're so beautiful or because they love them so much. And so they learn at an early age to be hyper aware of all the emotions going on around them and to take responsibility for everything, regardless of where it comes from, and then yeah. to feel guilty and ashamed because the other thing that they're taught is that they're damaged goods and broken and worthless. So it's very important for us to be aware that dental anxiety from a cause like sexual assault will come with this whole area superimposed, as opposed to someone who might have just had bad dental experiences who doesn't have these shame, guilt, low self-worth issues. Yes. Because unfortunately, they, they, they play out in, in very damaging ways. So for example, if people feel and are deeply taught that they're worthless, usually they struggle with oral home care and self-care in general. So that often goes out the window because yeah. they don't believe that they're worth it. And often they'll ignore, again, taught from a young age to override and ignore body signals like pain. So unfortunately, that usually translates into delaying coming in with a toothache for much longer than usual. So 
we have to be aware of the impact of, of the low self-worth and also the, the coping strategies people use to deal with the trauma, which all unfortunately damage the mouth too, like comfort eating and, and smoking and drinking and drugs and so on. But you're absolutely right. Survivors often feel like they don't belong and they're not, they're not valued. So we have to take all of this into account. And although it sounds super complex emotionally, which it is, we're not mm. required to fix anything here or be yeah. psychologists. We just have to be very aware. And because survivors are taught that they're to blame, they perceive blame much more easily. So we have to monitor our tone of voice and body language and make sure that people aren't perceiving things as blame. So it's it doesn't take much to manage those issues and, and avoid judging and avoid shaming. Yeah. So it's easier than we think, even though it's a very complex problem. Yes, but certainly the first step is being aware of those potential mindsets that these patients might have. And then following awareness, it makes it much more amenable to do within our role as dentists. Yeah. And and this That's is right. again what, yes. what you're bringing to the fore. These are the light bulb moments, certainly for me, and I'm sure for anyone who's listening, it was very enlightening. Yeah. Yeah. And again, your, your overarching message of the impact that we might have by treating somebody with care, kindness, empathy, demonstrating yes. that they have self-worth might be the key to unlock behavior change or change in their brain chemistry, even as, as they go forward in life. Yes, you know, it's proven. And that's how trauma is officially healed through the neuroplasticity. There was a mindset when I did a whole lot of research into trauma and trauma theory, and there was a mindset that the brain changes that happen from trauma are fixed for life up okay. until very, very recently. And it's yeah. only neurobiological evidence about um, neuroplasticity that has very recently shown that trauma with hard work and time can actually be fully resolved and okay. that the events can be moved to what they call an integrated memory and not be unresolved. And so yeah. the, the way that healing has been shown to happen is so amazingly just feeling heard and understood and uh, accepted. And we can offer that. And so mm. what that triggers is, just as you said, a very powerful biological response. And that affects gene expression and stress reactivity and immune yes. system function. It's quite stunning, actually. And I've seen it happen. I've seen that we can give patients life skills just by believing in their capability and really mm -hmm. clearly communicating that they're not broken and that there is hope that they, you know, even if we start with a very difficult starting place and a mess uh, and a lot of dental work necessary, that there really is a way forward that is achievable because often they've given up and, and they often take any news about their mouth, like more caries or more periodontal disease as confirmation of how broken they are. So we can quite easily start to swing that around into moving towards a capable and healthy mindset and moving people out of any victim mentality or identity that they might have. Yes, that's a central part of, of what I'm advocating is yeah. that we we because actually the evidence confirms that if you really do convey your belief that it's possible for people to cope, they do live into that, even yeah. beyond their wildest yeah. expectations. It's, yeah. it's very exciting to see. Mm. I, I yeah. found that actually in, with patients in the chair situation that when they first hear if I say, look, I really believe you can overcome this and shift this fear obstacle and that you can get back to oral health, they say, why do you have faith in me? Look at what I've shown you is just I'm, I'm hopeless. And I say, no, no, I've seen this before. You, you absolutely can do this. I do really believe that you are capable here. Then over time, they start to tinker with their belief because they really feel the solid anchor of belief from me. Okay. And they start to experiment a bit. They say, oh, Maybe I will try doing a bit 
more without local anaesthetic or maybe I'll spend a bit longer this appointment and, you know, give it a go and then they'll cope really well and they'll yeah. surprise themselves and then that becomes very empowering and they think, gosh, I never realised I could manage and it just grows from there. So yeah, we can yeah. kind of be that anchor that encourages them to risk and be courageous. And, and I've seen that they get very determined. Like I had a, a patient who I had discussed removal of her wisdom teeth for two years and every appointment we would say it and she'd say, oh, I can't do it. And mm -hmm. I'd say, yes, you can. And, and just discuss exactly how it would look and how she would cope. And then she did it two years later okay. under local in the chair. So, yeah, it's quite incredible how people can improve their confidence and self-worth quite quickly with our with our connection yeah i don't know if you've read norman Deutsch, the brain yes. that changed itself <laughs> yes. that was the first sort of mainstream book that came out about neuroplasticity and, and it's quite fascinating and, and obviously you, right. you're tapping into into that on a much deeper level or on a much more applied level but it certainly is, has become mainstream science now but the ability of the brain to change itself is quite astonishing absolutely and it's not as though the original trauma memories are lost it's just that you create a counter memory and a new yeah. neural pathway that yeah. over time with enough repeated exposures to fun and very safe and trusted dental visit, it, it just diminishes in its intensity over time. Yeah. It, all their previous triggers, they actually get smaller and smaller and eventually people can let them go altogether. But it does yeah. take time. It's not usually very fast. It's a long project. And just stay on that topic, what you talked about was, if I'm getting this right, that you talked about these patients are using a, a survival brain versus a learning and developing brain, yes. and their alarm system is distorted as well. It's much more hyper-responsive. Can you speak a little bit about that? Because that often ties into the way patients will respond in the dental practice, whether even it be interacting with reception staff, never mind even coming into the dentist and lying in the dental chair. Yes, absolutely. Well, again, with neurobiological research, they've looked at the effects of trauma on the brain, and this is all trauma, and the brain becomes flooded with adrenaline and cortisol, and that sets it into a fear-driven survival mode. As you just said, with a distorted alarm system, perceiving danger, even in positive situations, yeah. the brain becomes fixated on escape from threats and subconsciously scans the environment for them all the time. And so the dental surgery and everyone in it is automatically perceived as a threat, even before anything has happened. So people aren't able to access their frontal lobe thinking brain very well, which is when I really talk about informed consent and understanding that people have to be in an arousal level where they can actually think. So we have to reassure and calm patients before making decisions or even give written information to review later. So yeah. the, these sort of brain changes affect our clinical practice the whole way through. And yeah, what happens is the filtering system higher up in the brain can't distinguish between what's relevant right now and what can be dismissed. So it's much, much harder to be present and to self-calm. And if you think about something, again, like sexual assault, that's just one example of trauma. It usually happens in childhood around the age of key developmental stages. Okay. And so that actually shapes the development of the whole autonomic mm. nervous system because obviously it's our, the environment affects how we develop and it really affects the lived experience in in their body. They don't know it any other way. And it yeah. obviously just as it affects the ability to learn and that's dramatically reduced because the limbic system is just so activated and hyper aroused trying to survive so it's unfortunate that it's written into the way the person is socialized as well and yeah 
and often survivors of sexual assault, therefore, or trauma from a young age, can't use resources and relationships or have the same chance at success or fulfilling their potential in employment. And so often they're on welfare systems or they go into the criminal justice system. This is sort of more extreme cases. But trauma is a spectrum. So something, yeah, events that become traumatic differ between people and what's traumatic for one person won't be for another. And it it's quite complex and depends on a, a great number of variables. But back to our patients, it's critical that we understand that will be perceived as a threat and that certainly any emotions that are going on in the surgery and reactions will be taken on and registered and then the patient will often feel bad about it. So they'll pick up on any upset or anger or disgust that belongs to the dentist or staff and then feel shame about it. So it's most critical that we're aware that that's what's going to be happening. Uh, I think for me, my takeaway from that when I heard it was really gives me a greater ability to be able to empathise with those patients. If I know that a lot of it isn't coming from the conscious mind and and not, that's right. not, not that's taking right. it personally, it, these are inbuilt automatic responses visceral responses that these patients have and it's not any not anything personal against me or or my staff or anything like that it it, for me was very useful to hear that and and be able to maybe change the way I think about these interactions that's right I can give you an example of a patient who presented full of tattoos and piercings he was swearing he was aggressive to the reception on the way in Mm -hmm. and he came in and just bagged every other dentist he'd been to with swear words and was really quite it was quite scary how aggressive he was. But I I really do understand that aggression is, one, a manifestation of severe anxiety yes. and, two, a defensive approach to relationships, which comes about because people have been hurt before. And so that's just one way that can manifest. So when you don't take anything like that personally, you do see through those responses as defensive behaviours, then I was able to sort of listen to him and believe what he was saying And over the course of a few minutes in conversation, his demeanour completely changed. And he is actually extremely sensitive and one of my most gentle patients. So uh, he hasn't been aggressive since, actually. So it's quite remarkable how deeply trauma can shape people's responses. And and I suppose that is the essence of the trauma-informed approach is accounting for the effects of trauma in people's reactions. Something like smoking, um, it's traditional that, you know, if patients tell us that they smoke or comfort eat, it's hard not to express some form of negative response, but it, it really does make sense given that that was their only coping strategy to avoid unbearable pain when they were young, usually, that's the usual scenario, and that, you know, they were sort of self-medicating because that was the best they can do. It's, yeah, people's choices and decisions, we really don't know the backstory, so it's, it's really yeah. critical not to judge or make any assumptions and to be aware of our own biases in that in that regard. I've even had patients yes. th- thank me for not shaming them for smoking. They, they say that I I tell them about the risks and complications and outcomes of it, like yeah. oral, oral cancer and perio, yeah. but yeah. not uh, make them feel at all bad, that it's just another choice that they can be making or not making. It, it's a subtle but important thing. People really do pick up where we're coming from it's conveyed non-verbally mainly anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also yeah. one more thing that was alluded to in this, the challenges for survivors, you talked about this regression to, to a childlike state and something you said really was very resonant for me as well. You said something like the adult you see in front of you may not 
be actually behaving like an adult. They might have regressed back to that 10-year-old child or 8-year-old child who's had something right. terrible happen to them. That's right. That's right. So when memories are triggered, again, the response can be not rational in any sense and mm. people can just go into that fight-flight mode which can allow them to regress and be extremely scared of being judged and, and even demonstrate inappropriately sexual behaviour and strange kind of responses and... Even they may not be in control of whether that happens. Yes. And another very important reaction that we have to be mindful of is dissociation because we all okay. are so familiar with fight and flight, yeah. which you know the signs and yeah, sweaty, shaky, panicky, mm -hmm. um, that sort of trauma patients often present that way. But with regard to dissociation, that's a withdrawal of being present yeah. from physical and emotional reality. And yeah. so it's, it's quite deceiving and often missed because patients are very quiet so it can look like they're coping quite well. But in reality, they're often away with the fairies and have they've actually completely removed themselves from the present. And yeah. unfortunately, you see, that's not necessarily a problem. People often enjoy going to their happy place and escaping during appointments. And they, you know, they often say, I'll see you afterwards. <laughs> but for survivors, often they can't control whether it happens or they're unaware they're doing it. And that's incredibly distressing. And that's actually why returning to consciousness from sedation or general anesthetic is often a really big trigger because that feeling of not knowing that they were somewhere else and then coming back can be really upsetting. Often people were drugged before an assault. So again, we have to be mindful that drugs like Valium mm, can take yeah. away people's sense of control. Yeah. Yeah. It's certainly very complex, with, but I think a number of the points yes. that you've raised really resonate with me and make a lot of sense on the universal level, for, as you say, for treating every patient well, but particularly being mindful of, of these potential trauma survivors. Can yes. we take it into the dental environment and more applied skills that we can think about the theory of what we can do as dentists, then we'll bring it to the practicalities of, of a day-to-day -day dental appointment. We've alluded to already, you've mentioned that this change in attitude and the universal precautions to ensure that the dynamics of the trauma are not replicated. Yes. Can you talk more about what we as dentists can do and maybe later on as well, how we could respond if there was a, a disclosure of something specific that's, that's happened to a patient? Sure. Well, I will start by perhaps discussing the general mindset because yeah. all the practical strategies I've found the most useful over the last 20 years emanate from this central mindset of giving back power, control and choice and okay. understanding that people have lost power and sort of being sensitive to how disempowered they are in our surgery environment. So in order for a patient to regain confidence and a sense of control, the biggest and first thing to rebuild is trust. And yeah. in order to rebuild trust, there's a long list of key skills that I can roll off if you like. The, the first element of that is empathy, and that, that really is allowing somebody to understand that, that we get it, that they're not alone, we know what they're going through. It's feeling with them and yeah. communicating that we, we really do understand what's happening and putting ourselves in their perspective. Yeah, there's a, a number of qualities to empathy. It's really critical not to interrupt people as they're talking and not to try and fix the problem, even if you can think of lots of ways to do it. And it's not as though our response can actually necessarily fix the problems anyway. The, the main benefit of empathy is people actually feeling heard and understood, which is the connection. Yes. 
Yes, we, we effectively need to connect with what patients are describing in ourselves so we can yeah. relate. But, but on that note, it's quite important to distinguish what's theirs and what's not and not get lost in their emotions. So if they're describing an incredibly distressing or painful experience, empathy doesn't require us to actually fully feel that horrible anxiety or depression or PTSD that they're describing. It's yeah. it's most valuable for us to access that place in ourselves and show that we understand, but, but to actually see them as a separate person and that that's what belongs to them and not take it on in order to be there for them. So that's just a way for us to avoid burning out effectively. Yes. We spoke a few weeks ago and I talked about yes. uh, empathy is a big subject of mine. I really, yes, me really too. interests me and yes. I read a lot about it and look into it. And I told you about a, a thread I was looking that's at right. on social media about we shouldn't use empathy because empathy leads to burnout. And that's right. Well, you've alluded to that. I think well, my understanding of empathy is is three components. So there's the metaphorically walking in the patient's shoes and That's understanding right. understanding the cognitive, which is what they're thinking, the, right. the affective, which is what they're feeling, and That's using right. that understanding to guide your actions. Indeed. Yeah. And I think what this person was alluding to was really buying in too much to what's going on with the patient. And I think if we do yes. that, it does lead to burnout. And it, it doesn't allow you to get to that third part of the definition of empathy to guide your actions, because you, you effectively yeah. become paralyzed as well in the patients, usually the feelings, not the thinking. So That's right, so yes. And actually, it's quite easy to take on their emotions, especially if we're around trauma for hours and hours a day. Mm -hmm. And we do need to access our feeling of what they're going through in order to relate. But very commonly, I'll be sitting with a patient and I'll feel that temptation because I really feel so strongly for them to, to kind of go right in. But then I'll stop myself and say, no, no, I this is me, that's them, and that belongs to them. And in order to be most helpful for them, I need to actually stay present within myself and know that that's not mine. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so think... it does take consciously ensuring that but you've just put it into word what i was trying to articulate and you've articulated yeah. very well consciously consciously no, separating uh, ourselves yeah yes but, but it, it's a subtle point because we still have to go to it to under, mm -hmm. show people yes. we really do get it and show that human reaction it it uh brene brown does a lot of excellent work in this regard yes. and she says something along the lines that compassion and empathy without boundaries is just not genuine yes and that's that point that we, we really have to know where to draw the line of what to take on and what not to. Yes. Yes. Because it, it doesn't help the patient anyway if we fall into it with them. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you've alluded to some, uh, it's a Brene Brown quote I've written down here in my notes, actually. <laughs> and and she's done this meta study of what quality most compassionate people have in common and and it's all those things empathy listening however yes. she noted one variable among all the most compassionate people and and she's i've written this in capitals boundaries of steel and she actually says boundaries of steel like Very immovable clear. Yeah. clear yeah yeah That's right. and you know it's fascinating this is an area i've really struggled with because mm -hmm. i have so much to give but I've fallen into the trap through experience of overgiving and then getting resentful. And what I've learnt is that the boundaries of survivors have been violated and it blown so badly that they've lost, often lost reference. So they won't realise that they're asking for something that's beyond the scope of what we'd normally do. And yeah. they often can't understand why, 
you know, it's not fine for me to come over to their house at 10 o'clock because I'm their only friend or, you know, it really is up to us to model healthy boundaries. And actually, I found when you start to ask people what is and isn't okay with them, they're, they're, it's just a, a new world because they're so used to their voice not being heard and their boundaries not being respected. So yes. that's a, another yeah. way that as dentists, we can model a healthy relationship. Often survivors have had no experience of relationships without a winner or a loser and that this dental relationship can be the first healthy one where they get respected and it's a win-win. So yeah, that's uh, a collaborative relationship. That's right. That's right. So Yes. So back to back to building or rebuilding yeah. trust. Empathy is kind of the first thing. Yes, and you're right. The qualities of empathy are also very well covered by Daniel Goleman in the yeah. Emotional Intelligence book. Yeah. So the next one is compassion. That's the essential for building trust and a safe space. And I really, once again, we're discussing it's only possible for us to be compassionate when we have compassion for ourselves and we're not yeah. judgmental. And that I found very hard because I'm a perfectionist and and dentistry is very obsessive and detail-oriented. So yes. it, it's, a, it's a process to, to learn to be very kind to ourselves first yeah. and then we can translate that across. That actually is a recurring theme from the people I speak to as well. Oh, very, very experienced practitioners who've yes. been, seen all the ups and downs of dentistry and the key, a key recurring theme is we need to be kind to ourselves as dentists. Absolutely, yes. yes. As well as pursuing excellence in technical sure. Proficiency, so they can yes. coexist. Yes. yes, they're not mutually exclusive. Yes, <laughs> yes. It's not being kind doesn't imply any drop of standard. Yeah, yes. that's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, another very important one is to avoid falling into the trap of trying to be a superhero and save your patients. So yeah. often survivors have just had such a tough run, and it's your heart goes out to them. You you just want to help, but it's much more important to honour their resilience as a survivor. We're just one of many services that can trigger trauma uh, memories for them and they're incredibly strong, actually. So if we come and offer all of these things that we may not be able to deliver on, that's very uh, unhelpful. So, yeah, sort of once again, as a boundary not to cross, try to avoid being a superhero and yes. saving, saving the patient. <laughs> yeah. And for, for a male dentist, this is uh, another challenge because most offenders are men and so yeah. just just being male can be a, a trigger for mm -hmm. sexual assault in particular. But as a boundary, the way you express your care, if it comes across giving the patient full autonomy, then that's extremely helpful to them okay. as opposed to expressing the care like the patient needs protecting or like they're not capable of making their own decisions, that sort of old paternal. Yeah. Um, uh, many survivors have told me that that's what rapists did to try and calm them down during the assault, so it can be a big trigger. So Okay, that's um, really interesting, yes. Yeah, that's a boundary example. And, yes, there's many, many more, but yeah. even just, just finding out what is and isn't okay, if it's okay to talk about something with a patient or if it's okay to to do certain things, you can just get little versions of consent going the whole time and it manifests all through the appointment and as you get to know yeah. the patient, it, it becomes easier and easier. Okay. Yeah. And so more skills for trust. So that was compassion, empathy and boundaries we've talked about so far. Avoiding judgment I found to be unbelievably transformative for people. This is what gets me going. I get so excited about this. People come in, even without a trauma history, full of embarrassment about their mouths. Usually they've neglected them. I had a patient the other day who hadn't told her husband that she 
has a full upper denture mm. and she hadn't yeah. it out for 20 years. Right. <laughs> so you can imagine what was underneath it. And yes. so, yes, I mean, there's just so much shame and embarrassment people carry in their mouths. And when we communicate that they're fully accepted, no matter what they say, no matter what they do, that we are not going to judge them. I see, I think, let's like people just shed 20 kilograms on the spot. They, you can see their whole body language opens up. They're just so relieved and they're so happy. And and a lot of people come and say that they've felt judged by previous dentists or mm. told off for being anxious or made guilty that they're not brushing and flossing. And so it's so, so critical for us to, to really show that we're not going to be critical and we're not yeah, judging. Yeah, I agree. One of the very common walk in the door first lines of patients is the I hate dentists. But another, yes, one right. of the, another one of the very common ones is coming in and saying something like, you'll have never seen a mouth like this before. They're, they're really yes. setting themselves up for right. the criticism or the judgment that they think is going to come their way. And if, if you yes. respond calmly and well let let's sit down and let, let's see what it is and you you respond in a non-judgmental manner that can be very transformed I've oh, seen that many super. times that's right I actually usually respond with congratulations well done for coming back and I'm so excited yeah. and I really genuinely am because actually the harder the starting place and the more extreme things are in the beginning the bigger potential for positive change which is yeah. so inspiring for everyone yeah. so yeah. it's just the opportunity to make more of a difference and and people are usually yeah very very happy if i say look let's just focus on what what's possible now and well done and yeah and yeah. acknowledge the courage it took to come back yeah yeah <laughs> yes. I, I agree yes that's, yeah. that's yeah, really, yeah. really really good tips for how to yeah. deal with that yeah so, so the next sort of way to build trust, that re this really is uh, sort of underpinning everything, is to validate people's worries. And often people come in with the most, they're, they're very scared that their worries sound crazy. And with regard to sexual assault, the triggers for memories are very unpredictable. It can be the colour of a tie that somebody's wearing, okay. a red tie, or it be, and on a different day it might be something else. So that even they're not aware of when it might happen a flashback or a memory trigger scenario yeah. so they often come in and say oh god this is just such a crazy concern and so yeah validating all of that and making sure they feel that that makes perfect sense given what they've been through and that it's not a stupid thing and and yes. just to open up the communication so they feel comfortable to bring anything up so mm -hmm. that, that's another yeah. way to build, build trust and yes accepting people fully is sort of encompassing all dimensions of difference. So often people say from migrant backgrounds already feel quite marginalized. And so they're more reluctant to bring up issues, personal issues. Okay, so yeah. yeah, once again, it's critical to or LGBTIQ community as well. They already have come in with such a not feeling of acceptance. Sure. Uh, and so, yeah, it's sort of, we have to be extra welcoming and extra open and accepting of difference. Yeah. Um, and another way to build trust, I, I've got a whole list here, is yeah. to really believe people's perspectives and the experiences they describe. And a lot of survivors say that they're not believed and that the responses have been very unsupportive in the past to anything that they might say. So okay. I think, yeah, showing that we are not thinking that they're crazy or uh, we're just sort of taking everything at face value yeah. is yeah. quite critical. And that sort of involves acknowledging our own biases and assumptions mm, yeah. so that we can get them out of the way. <laughs> yeah, keeping your word is obviously a big one for trust and not over-promising things. Down, down, in fact, to the details, like if you say the drilling's going to take another four seconds, really stop after that time so they can yeah. bank on your word. Humility, that's a, a huge one for trust. I think that way people can feel comfortable 
to bring up things and they know that we're not going to be defensive and that we'll be open. And that, that really helps to avoid a lot of complications down the track. Can you explain humility a little bit more? Sure. I suppose humility and compassion are quite linked. It's yeah. acknowledging that we're all a work in progress and that we don't have to okay. have all the answers. Yeah. And so if somebody says, oh, look, can you do this instead of this? Because I didn't like it when you when you said we're halfway through. Instead, I want you to tell me when you're when you're just a minute away from finishing or, okay. you know, they'll ask you to adjust something. Yes. And instead of being defensive and saying... Mm -hmm. This is the way I always do it, yeah. yeah. That's right, that's right. Okay. You can be quite open to knowing that we, we don't have to intuit everything perfectly. And yeah. people, yeah, people just sort of get a sense that we're curious and open and not too fixed in our, in our beliefs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's yeah. right. And obviously accountability, taking responsibility for everything that we're doing work-wise. Confidentiality is a big part of building trust so we don't come in sharing experiences that are not ours to share because even if it's not directly about the patient, then they get the sense that you'll go and talk to other people about them in that way. And, yeah, having the most generous interpretation of their reactions, that's what we've already kind of discussed. Yeah, so that, that's trust and, and making a safe environment. And then the next big key theory principle behind this approach is to take on an, an empowerment model. The way the old way was an illness-based model, yes. focusing on being a caretaker and fixing problems, that, which implies... That paternalistic model, yeah. yeah. And, yes. and, yeah, the old medical model was mm. all about focusing on illness and symptoms. And yeah. because of this issue of people feeling broken, even people who haven't had sexual assault often feel broken. It's most valuable to focus on a capability. So let's say, I'll just give it a clinical example here. Let's say a patient comes in and you've been discussing their diet and carries risk and they say, I've reduced the teaspoons of sugar from four to three. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Then you say, well done, that's great, rather than, oh, God, that's a huge amount of yeah. sugar. Yes. <laughs> so it's yeah. sort of focusing on the, their strengths and, and reinforcing little changes, yeah. keeping the environment in the surgery sort of warm and positive. So that's an empowerment model. And that, that really is how people move out of feeling incapable. Something you alluded to, I think, earlier on, they may have self-defeating behaviours as well, and that's linked into that. So the empowerment is the flip side of the coin of the self-defeating behaviours in, in a way, is it? Yes, indeed. It is really just giving a, a different program back than what they've had in the past. Exactly right. Exactly. Mm. Yes. And that's I've just seen unbelievable amounts of change over time with people. And, and I realised often nobody's believed in them before. So yeah. it's very difficult for them to believe in themselves without anyone else validating that. Sure. So just showing that on lots of little levels in, and yeah. in lots of different yeah. ways can, can lead to profound, profound change. Yeah. I was just going to say there's, I'm sure, a cumulative effect of lots of little yeah. things. That, that's right. That's right. It is. It is. It's a, a process over time. And it's depending on how severe the trauma is to start with it, it can take years. That, that's what I found. Yeah. But, yeah. It, but it's worth it. And it doesn't slow us down. It's kind of just happens alongside the usual dental care. That's a, sort of an empowerment model. And the next big principle is to have an equal status collaborative partnership yeah. and shift, shift out of a kind of caretaking to a collaborative mindset where, yeah, a patient experiences and influences the interaction just as much as we do. So it's it's sort of working through problems together rather than prescribing this is how it's going to be and us being the person in control the whole time and the patient being passive. Mm -hmm. So I've also found to be unbelievably valuable. And people, 
I've really seen this. They take the voice that they get through our relationship, through the dental relationship, out into the rest of their lives. And and so these are sort of life, life skills in general. They learn to advocate for themselves and to speak up. Yeah, I've seen some incredible shifts where people feel confident to start working again after many years or they feel confident to start having a romantic relationship after a long time. And it's not just because they can smile fully. It's, yes. again, because of this experience they've had. Yeah, with us. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, it's such a powerful thing. And, and it, again, it makes so much sense when, when you <laughs> articulate it that way. It just makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and, and, and it is because we're working on all levels with patients that we have such a unique opportunity as dentists where we're very uniquely positioned because we see people more often than their doctors usually. And so it's can be we can build more continuity and deeper connection in that regard. And also because of the physical and uh, emotional power imbalance inherent and it's such an intimate interaction dentistry yes because the mouth is just so personal and so sensitive so if we are sort of able to influence that area then other areas are actually a lot easier for people after that yeah yeah. Yeah. and so yes regarding the theory behind it the last key element is choice and and offering choice wherever we can down to the tiniest thing which sunglasses would you like i've had patients just exclaim in joy, you know, when they say, could you please put the suction there and not there? And they say, I've never been able to say that at a surgery before. So it comes down to little tiny choices and people start to, and often not in the beginning, but start to realise that they can speak up and say, could you please open the window or, you know, any tiny alteration and just encouraging them to make choices all the time also up that sense of control and confidence yeah, yeah. And that, t- that ties back I suppose to that humility I would imagine in a situation like that when somebody asks you a question like that you know you've crossed into a better place because they feel empowered enough to be able to ask you to move it and you demonstrate right. you demonstrate the humility to yes no I always of have course, a decide but I can I can move it over here for you if you yes like. yeah I do uh, I get very excited when I hear them start to ask things the other yeah. thing I feel excited by is when they start to stop me actually because another big key point I worked out is that although in the beginning we always set up a stop queue and offer people to stop anytime that's universal I understand now people don't feel confident to use their voice to stop and so we have to monitor and sort of see how they're managing and stop if we can see that they're showing any sign of distress but then when people do say oh could I have a break or can I have a rinse then I think yes this is great (laughs) It's incredible how valuable it is when you do build this level of connection with people and what that opens up in terms of when you're just in the surgery, building the relationship, listening to them, particularly in the beginning, learning the early signposts, taking notice of things in the conversation and their nonverbal, their body language. What what I found when you offer this sort of unhurried attention full of empathy and compassion is that people feel comfortable enough to open up and tell you what's actually really going on on a on another level for them they often can feel once they can feel that you're not going to judge them and that that you're not going to rush them either they start to open up and describe what's happened in the past more in dental setups rather than in their trauma most people don't want to go into details and we don't need to know the details anyway when they start to open up they really tell you information that turns out to be quite critical later on like fears and hopes, and that avoids complications and allows you to get to the issues a lot faster. So in the end, it saves time, actually. Mm -hmm. So, 
yeah, it's, it's quite quite spectacular what what's possible when you do have this trust set up again yeah. and free, relaxed, positive relationship because people, yeah, they often cry as they're opening up. So once again, that's why it's critical that we're emotionally open. But eventually, yeah, it leads to people just being very relaxed and you and trying to help you actually trying to help us as the dentist. It's like a dance, the nurse and, and the dentist and the patient. We're all working as a team, helping each other. Patients, mm-hmm. you know, offer to turn their head, you know, do you need it here or there? And, you know, they're quite fired up to, to be supportive in general and yeah. not lost in their own fears. They can just fully relax so that because they know that they're in control. And, yes, it leads to incredible loyalty and word-of-mouth referrals and a really good reputation. And So there's all these things that come out of putting time and energy into building a robust relationship yeah. from the beginning. Yeah, I can see that that makes a lot of sense. And I suppose yep. it brings us nicely into the practicalities of the actual dental appointment. There is a vast amount of information in that interview, and certainly, my experience is that most of this I had never formally learned before. I strongly encourage you to revisit this material, either by re-listening to the podcast and making notes, or accessing the superb resources on Sharon's website, links to which I have provided below. They are an amazingly generous resource for the whole dental profession. In part two, we will get straight into the practicalities of day-to-day dentistry and how this all works. The first question I ask relates to the demand on our time that these protocols might take. Thank you for listening and, as always, please share with your friends and leave a rating on iTunes, all of which helps to boost the profile of this podcast.